Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Steve. And I'm Sarah. So, here we are in our series we've been doing all this Lent about atonement theories, which is a fancy way of asking what we think happens at the cross, and we've spent time in big classic uh, theories that you will learn about in an academic institution. We've spent some time in in in-depth passages from the New Testament. Sarah, where are we headed today? So today we are heading towards the Old Testament because there are a lot of imagery in these atonement theories in the New Testament that are borrowing imagery from the Old Testament Mm -hmm. because there is a lot of history in sacrifices um, in particular. So we're going to look at some passages in the Old Testament that talks about specifically animal sacrifices, but at least one case of almost human sacrifice and what all of those sacrifices ultimately meant because that is important in how the Jewish audience in particular saw and heard and understood Jesus' death in the New Testament. And it may be interesting to think a little bit about um, as the Christian faith spread and became something bigger or wider than just people of uh, Jewish descent and ancestry, how some parts of that imagery of sacrifice got held on to, even for people who didn't grow up with that, and that New Testament writers thought, you got to really understand this bit of Israel's history to understand what Jesus is, and other parts they sort of like left behind. So interesting mm-hmm. to see what, what parts of this got uh, really held on to, is this is a really important way of understanding what happens at the cross. So maybe, maybe a starting point is, you know, we've talked about how different uh, theologians and thinkers over the centuries have tried to make sense of what Jesus' death is like. And some have used the metaphor of, well, you know, it's like uh, uh, someone taking the punishment for you, or it's like someone paying your debt, or it's like someone winning a battle. And that in a way, sacrifice becomes its own metaphor. It's, mm-hmm. oh, it's like when an animal gets sacrificed for the people's sins or something, or for, you know, whatever the need is. But that requires some unpacking. What do we think is happening when an animal gets sacrificed? Um, that certainly would have been a part of the world that uh, Israel in uh, the story of the Old Testament experienced, especially when they had a temple or a tabernacle to offer sacrifices. And it's certainly a part of a lot of the um, religious life of other surrounding nations before there's a national tribes of Israel and Israel and Judah as kingdoms. So that would have been a part of their culture in a way that is less familiar to us today. Mm-hmm. We have to do some unpacking, right? So I think a good starting place is to go back to the first recorded offering to God, which is way back in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. And um, so Cain and Abel are the sons of um, Adam and Eve, and they each have their own role to play in their family to produce food, right? So Abel is a keeper of sheep, and Cain is a tiller of the ground, and so at Presumably, at the end of the year, each brother brought an offering of their fruits of the year to give to God. So, you know, Abel brought the fat portions of, you know, one of his baby lambs. And Cain brought, presumably, some wheat or something. And God loved the smell of the cooking sheep and not so much the burning wheat. So, um, Cain and Abel... You know, of course, got into a bit of a tiff and Cain killed Abel. So, one thing that's interesting about the way this story unfolds is that there's no, like, 
precursor setting is like a here's the rules of what you have to mm-hmm. offer to God. It just seems to be like the story assumes you know it's the thing to do. You offer thanks to God, and whatever mm-hmm. you have, you're supposed to do, which is a, that's a lovely posture. But like that, this becomes this point of envy of like Cain uh, decides the way to deal with the the difference between his offering and Abel's offering is to kill his brother rather than to deal with his own stuff or figure out mm-hmm. what you know what the problem is here. But that sacrifice seems to be, at, even at that point in the story, even in Genesis 4, the storytelling is like, yep, people have been offering stuff up to God from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and later when you get in uh, to the, the laws in the Torah in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, it gets much more uh, prescriptive. For this occasion you offer this sacrifice, for this occasion you offer mm-hmm. this sacrifice. And it seems like... In the Cain and Abel story, we don't get into the, a lot of the inner logic of why are they offering other than there it seems to be the sort of a, it's what you do or it's an mm. out of gratitude or we had this come up out of the ground or uh, I raise this animal and thank you God for letting you know these things happen. There's this sense of thanks, but it's not so much like a, I sinned, I messed up, I have to offer this animal to die or I have to give this wheat to die or something like that. Yeah, there's absolutely no prompting. God isn't asking for this in any way that we have recorded. Um, there isn't even... You know, I'm only supposing that this is after, like, the harvest, but that's not recorded either. Like, it's absolutely just, oh, yeah, one day each brother brought the fruits of his labor and offered them to God, and God favored one over the other for some reason. Right, right. And there, like, people have spent a lot of time over the centuries trying to unpack why, who, who did it right, or who had the wrong thing, or does this mean that God only likes meat sacrifice and God hates you? And like, man, is that a lot of ink spilled speculating mm-hmm. on what seems to be just in the story. It's almost like they just need to say, here's the occasion that led there to their fight where one kills the other. Yep. Um, but it, it, at least the way the storytelling goes suggests that like there's this impulse, who knows where they got it from, but there's this like impulse within human beings of like well whatever's up there whatever powers are up there whether i call it god or the many gods or the whatever of like i guess i'm supposed to offer something to them and then from there that quickly spins out in all sorts of different uh pagan religions to well the gods are upset and we have to appease them or we have to give the gods a certain amount of something or they will withhold the rains at harvest time they you know like that, that there's there quickly becomes this like divine economy over it of mm-hmm. we have to do these things in order to make the gods do what we want. That It becomes sort of like a bloody magic of like if we if we offer this sacrifice the gods will do the things that we ask. Um, and over against that then when Israel gets to codifying its laws and uh, these, these uh, rituals that become a part of its life you get sort of a, a slightly different take. You don't get a sense of God needs to be fed with sacrifices mm-hmm. of bring me your animals because otherwise I get hungry. Um... But there, there's a different sense of how the sacrifices work in, in Israel's life and what's going on. What, what, what things come to mind, Erica? It's, it's um, the sacrifice, like you said, it's not to feed the gods or to even appease the gods. It's consistently, we've messed up. We've sinned. We've okay. done something against God or something against our neighbor. And so the sacrifice is to cover, to to pay for that sin that we've done against God. So one area in which Israel was commanded to offer sacrifices were what's sometimes called sin offerings. Mm-hmm. Some part of the, you know, we messed up and uh, as a way of showing our sorrow, we're turning away from it, This the, the animal dies and there's 
forgiveness or something like yes. that. Um, there are there do continue to be sacrifices that are Thanksgiving related or harvest mm-hmm. related in Israel's life, and that, that there doesn't seem to be any baggage of sin there. It's more like God gave you another year of life, and you got to have a harvest, yep. and we give the first fruits of whatever we gave back to God as a reminder. I didn't make this happen. God gave us this wonderful creation that brings mm-hmm. forth food up out of the ground and things like that. But that that sin notion. Um, there was like daily or regular ordinary life kind of sin offerings and then there was sort of this much more big organized mm-hmm. ritual around uh, dealing with the people's sin. Yeah, so there's this yearly called the Day of Atonement. It, it's once a year. It was the one day in which uh, whether you had the tabernacle or the temple, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was held and it's it was a day to cover the sins for all of Israel and it's my understanding, so correct me if I'm wrong, you know, basically this day was to cover any sins that you may not have been covered, you know, by the daily offerings or, or other sin offerings throughout the year. And I think there's a sense, and at least to me, maybe this is my, my Lutheran bias here, but that there's this awareness that sin is bigger than just the individual wrong mm-hmm. acts I did, but that we're caught yep. up in something that's bigger, that's systemic, that is like... There's some things we can't escape, even if I try to be really, really good. Um, there's some ways that I'm complicit in a whole lot of rottenness. Mm-hmm. And that there's that awareness of, like, it's not just, oh, I coveted my neighbor's donkey or something like that. But, like, I'm part of a whole way of life that's broken. And, and mm-hmm. the, the, the notion of the Day of Atonement is to try and to, to uh, attend to the ways that we are constantly part of something bigger that you can't isolate to a single offense or something like in, that. In the way the community as a whole has, yeah. you know, because you might have a bunch of individuals doing things, but even sometimes whole communities right. will sin against God knowingly or unknowingly. And so we need to, you know, find a way to repent of that sin. And, and for the Old Testament, the laws that God put forth was the sacrifice of animals. Right, right. So, um... The, the, the Day of Atonement, um, there are actually two animals that are part of what the sacrificial ritual process is, but there's actually three, actually, before they even mm-hmm. get to the, uh, the, the, the big headliners. Uh, the, the high priest was supposed to offer a sacrifice for his own sin to sort mm-hmm. of get himself as his own householder so that he was ceremonially holy enough to go do the rest of this. Yes. And this is, like you said, the one day he's able to go in the holiest place, the place where mm-hmm. God symbolically dwells inside the Holy of Holies on top of the... So the space above the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. Mm-hmm. Um, and that after that, there's two animals that are involved, right? There's there's one animal, uh, it, it seems like it's unclear, a lamb and a goat or two goats, like there's some option about this, but yeah. something on the order of goat. Um, and that one gets sacrificed, one mm-hmm. dies, and the other has something very interesting happen to it. <laughs> what happens to the other one? So the other one, um, the high priest puts his hand on its head, and lays upon it all the curses of the community, ties a scarlet ribbon around its neck, I think, and then sends it off into the wilderness and says, goodbye, we'll never see you again. You're going to go die in the wilderness all alone. So what's interesting to me is, like, we talked before um, about how all of our pictures of atonement um, have limits to them and mm-hmm. that no one metaphor encompasses all of it. And to me, like, this bit from uh, Leviticus 16, you get it in, in the, the Torah, in the Old Testament, um, sort of like right from the beginning says, like, there's no one image that gets us across. On the one hand, there's the idea the animal dies and pays for the sins, and on the other hand, at the very same time, this other animal, our sins are put onto it and it's driven away, um, like carrying the curse with it or something like mm-hmm. that. And that both at the same time are part of what happens, as if to say one metaphor or the other doesn't do it justice. There's something bigger going on. 
so that like you can get places in the Psalms where it talks about you know God has removed our sins as far away as the east is from the west, and that sort of scapegoat, the animal that's driven out into the wilderness, mm-hmm. is that image of it, this is less about divine accounting or that God needs blood. It's like the whatever the rotten the junk is, it gets taken away from us, and this other animal bears it, uh, and then the other animal is sort of this image of like and something dies and in mm-hmm. in our place or 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 dealing with. Uh, our, our sin or something. Because the animal's blood, once you sacrifice that, then they would sprinkle that on the top of the Ark of the Covenant uh, and the place they called the, atone- the mercy seat or the atonement mm-hmm. cover there. And I guess the idea was it was supposed to be that this covers over us or covers over where our sins are or something like that. So sometimes the New Testament writers will riff on that imagery and be like, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus is like the sin offering. He's the sacrificial animal who, you know, I mean, John the Baptizer says uh, about Jesus, uh, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. That's the image of whether it was one particular sin offering or sort of them collectively, but the image is, oh, Jesus is going to be like this one who takes away the sins of the world. And maybe maybe John the Baptist is lumping them both together. You know, he bears them in his body and carries them away out in the wilderness, or he takes them in his body and leaves mm-hmm. them at the cross, whatever. Um, but th- that imagery the New Testament uses as a way of talking about what Jesus and what the cross is about. Now, there's another early, early, early informative ex- uh, experience of a lamb dying that mm-hmm. gets used to talk about what Jesus uh, does at the cross, but it, it becomes a symbol in and of itself. It's what happens at, at Passover, right? Oh, okay. I wasn't sure which, which early I'm, experience you are talking about. Uh, where, where did you want to go? <laughs> I, I was thinking of the binding of Isaac. Okay, well, let's, let's spend a moment there. What because that there? happens before yeah, yeah, Passover. Yeah. Um, so at one point, God does ask for a very specific sacrifice. Um, he asks this of um, Isaac's father, Abraham, and asks him to take his only son, who he had waited for like 80 or 90 years for, and, you know, uses Isaac as a test for Abraham of, will you do anything to worship me? Will you even sacrifice your only son? Um, or not only son, because I guess he has Ishmael. At this point, Ishmael is a person. <laughs> right, exactly. But his um, son by his beloved wife, Sarah. Mm-hmm. And so... Abraham turns to Isaac and is all like, "Okay, we're gonna go make our sacrifice to God now. You carry this bundle of cor- of um, you know, firewood for me, and we'll we'll just go." And um, Isaac keeps saying, "Oh, but we don't have a, a lamb." And um, Abraham goes, "God will provide. Don't worry. Don't you worry. You have nothing to worry about. We're gonna go up here and we're gonna set up like an altar and a fire." And and Isaac is still like. God hasn't provided a lamb yet. And Abraham continues with this. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. And he lays his son down on the altar stone place and is ready to, like, kill him. And finally God, like, stops him and says, Okay, okay, I see I see you're serious. You're, mm-hmm. you're good. You can get your son off of that thing now. And look, oh, look, a lamb is right over here in this bush for you. Um, but, yeah, God at one point did test Abraham by asking him to sacrifice Isaac. And we might have to spend, I mean, that could be spun out in all kinds of conversations about, does God need to have the test happen? Really? I mean, like there, there's all sorts of quick questions uh, that scene raises. But as far as the idea of someone losing a son over this, um, as, especially as the New Testament leader uses that imagery, it's, it's almost like it's saying the stakes of the human story, at some point someone's <laughs> going to lose a son over this, mm-hmm. and God stops it from being Abraham. And interestingly, I think, 
the, the language that's used to describe Isaac later gets used to describe Jesus at a couple of points. Mm-hmm. That when God approaches Abraham and says, take your son, your only son, whom you love and offer him as a sacrifice, mm-hmm. you get that deliberate, repeated phraseology at Jesus at his baptism and the transfiguration. This is my son, this is my only son, this is my beloved son. That is almost like the New Testament writers are going like, see, someone's going to lose a son over this. Mm-hmm. It won't be humans, it will be God who, who bears this loss mm. um, and takes that on. So in, in some sense, there's that sense of substitution of a sacrifice is required, but it won't be human beings who offer the sacrifice, mm. and it will be God who provides the sacrifice, and it becomes Jesus rather than Isaac. And the promise that God makes to Abraham doesn't get blown up uh, there in Genesis 15, but instead God keeps it by Jesus' death. And that Abraham, in his faithfulness, was correct. God does provide. He provided in that moment with his son, and he did not have to sacrifice his son. And he was right for us as well, is that God does provide that sacrifice. And I I know a number of folks will point out that in that Genesis story, when... um, Abraham and Isaac are about to head up the mountain to Mount Moriah. He tells the other guys in the group to stay behind at the foot of the mountain, maybe because he knows this is going to get unpleasant. But the, the text in, in um, uh, Genesis says, we will go up and we will come back down to you. And that there, like, there's this possibility of like, Abraham has no clue what's going to happen. And is, is he just you know putting on air so we, mm-hmm. Isaac doesn't figure out what's going to happen? <laughs> It'd be weird if he said, we're going to go up and I'm going to come back down. Uh, or is this like some sense of like Abraham saying, I don't know how God's going to deal with this, mm-hmm. but we're going up and we're coming back down. But, I mean, you're, you're right. Abraham, in the end, is right all along that God will provide. I mean, he has no clue how it will be, but he trusts that God will provide. I mean, is he trusting enough to even say that even if I have to sacrifice my own son... Isaac's still somehow going to come back with me. Like, you know, God is God, and he can raise him from the dead even if I have to sacrifice him. Possibly. But it, it's it's amazing to me the faithfulness of even Isaac, who he does question every once in a while, like, we don't, we still don't have a lamb. Um, but those questions stop after he's laid on the altar. And you don't hear that question anymore of, like, hey, Dad, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Like... This is weird. Why are you putting me in place of the lamb? Right. And, like, there isn't any of that question. There's, there's silence. Isaac is presumably just laying there mm-hmm. and letting this happen. Yeah. And as as if he, too, has faith that God isn't going to let this happen, that he's going to be okay. And how old is he at this time? I forget. I don't know if they actually say. There, there uh, There's a couple of Isaac and Ishmael stories where they're very odd about the ages. It's mm-hmm. kind of like whoever's telling the story doesn't truly understand the ages of children. <laughs> because there are times when they say, like, Ishmael is, like, 13, but he acts like he's two. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's a couple of those stories where Isaac and Ishmael's mm-hmm. ages are, like, very vague, and we can't really get a good grasp but of But still, I don't think age. he's much... He can't be older than 20 at this point. Yeah, I mean, no, like, he's, he's, still, I mean, he, he's still a child. At least in our understanding. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. He might be, you know, about 12, 13, which would make him a man. But it's and, b- mm-hmm. Before he's married, at least. So yeah. Right. yeah, there's no Rebecca. Right, right, right. But just to think, you know, somebody that young mm-hmm. to have that kind of faith, you know, when mm-hmm. the questions mm-hmm. stop, it, it's just, you know. Well, and there, there's, a, there's a sense to me, I think, that the, the biblical writers borrow from this about, like, especially even though technically Ishmael is in the picture, that Isaac gets treated as the only son because he's like the legitimate heir between Abraham and Sarah, mm-hmm. and that there's a number of stories later on that will highlight um, the importance of if there's an only child who is, because uh, that's the one in whom the family name mm-hmm. continues on. So like, mm-hmm. there's a big deal when you know Elijah raises the the child, mm-hmm. the the widow who's this is the only child, or Jesus mm-hmm. raised the the son of the widow at Nain. <clears throat> there's this recurring sense of like 
when you're talking about the firstborn or an only child, this is an important thing because it's, it's about the family's identity and legacy continuing mm-hmm. on. And that then part of what it seems like the New Testament then wants to lay down is that part of what God is willing to give up is whatever, whatever it means that God's mm-hmm. reputation or legacy or whatever, like God would rather have mm-hmm. us than that. Yeah. And um, this isn't the only story of the first only son being offered back to God um, with the understanding of God has promised more children. Because um, Abraham was promised the descendants that would fill the sky as the stars yeah. do. And um, later in the Old Testament, there's the story of Hannah, who has right. been barren for her entire marriage, so long so that her husband has given up hope of children through mm-hmm. her and um he's you know taken on a second wife. He, he has but he's also like you know you're enough for me like mm-hmm. i don't need anybody else i have you and which is lovely because <laughs> that's like not usually found in the old testament mm-hmm. um but eventually she has um she's given a son and she doesn't go up with her family to go do the yearly sacrifices until he's weaned. But then once he's weaned, she goes with her family for the yearly sacrifices and she offers him as the sacrifice of God has given me my first fruits. Here he is. Mm -hmm. He is for God. And he becomes a priest. Yeah, so that's not an instance of of human sacrifice in the sense of killing anybody. But yeah, the the biblical uh, story treats it like Mm -hmm. he's been offered up... that, that he now belongs in, in, in his childhood. The only stories we get are him growing up in the precursor of the temple there, yeah, with, with Samuel with and the tabernacle. Sure enough, because his mother offered him up as first fruits, um, which is also described in Leviticus mm-hmm. as you doing for your harvest. Mm-hmm. Um, she is given more sons. Right. So <clears throat> there's, that, there's that imagery that the New Testament sort of borrows to talk about what mm-hmm. happens at the cross. Jesus is like <clears throat> the the follow through of the, the Isaac story that it, Isaac doesn't have to die but someone's going to lose a son over this there's also the Passover story where there's an image of the lamb that dies in order that the people can mm-hmm. be free but interestingly it's not couched in the language of paying for anybody's sin right the, in the story of the Passover you've got uh, the people are slaves in Egypt and you've had this showdown between God and Pharaoh um, I'm going to tip my hand I think this sounds kind of Christus victory it's sort of like this big sort of mm-hmm. climactic battle kind of a deal you know, it, it's God versus Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And each of the previous plagues against Egypt uh, doesn't do the trick to get Pharaoh to let go of the slaves. And so God sort of is like, fine, I'm, I'm going to go the nuclear option. I will strike down the firstborn in Egypt. And how will God's people be saved? Oh, well, they, they will sacrifice a lamb in their household. Mm-hmm. And they put the blood of the lamb uh, on their doorposts. And then God passes over their houses when God sees the lamb's blood. And therefore, the name of the festival is Passover. Um, but that imagery gets borrowed by the New Testament. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, by a pretty significant person by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, to describe what's happening at the cross or what's going to happen at the cross too, right? Yeah, I mean, even at... Um at the Last Supper, or what we call the Last Supper now, which is a Passover meal. I mean, Jesus takes some of the metaphors about um, the bread and, and the blood, you know, and, and the blood of the Passover lamb as he's passing the cup around. And he says, this is my blood right. of a new covenant. You know, the, his disciples would have known the old covenant, the blood of the old covenant, and, and known exactly what that meant. That's the Passover blood, the blood that saved us and, and, and the firstborn as the rest of the firstborn of Egypt were being killed. Um but Jesus turns that around and says, this is my blood speaking ahead to you know, within the next 24 hours of his blood being shed on the cross. And so he's basically telling them, hi, hey, hello there. 
I am the new Passover lamb. Right. So all the imagery, all the ideas that are going on, for, I mean, for hundreds of years, all the, like, all, all good, faithful, mm-hmm. practicing uh, members of, of Israel and Judaism every year celebrate this Passover and retell the story mm-hmm. so that they're absolutely clear what this is about. And now Jesus, like, in an act that, again, sounds like this is only something you can do if you really are the Christ of God. This isn't, I mean, nobody, mm-hmm. nobody would approach taking a holy uh, event like this and saying, that's really about me, or this is now going to be about me, but takes the, the very element of the Passover meal and now says, this is this is me, this is what I'm going to do for you. Mm-hmm. This is Jesus wholeheartedly taking that metaphor of the Passover lamb whose blood uh, sets the people free, because when God mm-hmm. sees the lamb, God passes over, so their lives are saved, and it becomes the means for their freedom from slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jesus says, this is what I've come to do. So in a sense, Jesus you know, is, is suggesting that the cross is about setting us free from something. It's about um, keeping us safe, protecting us from whatever mm-hmm. the danger of death is, preserving us. But it's also about this sort of contest between God and the powers of evil that hold us captive. All that, and Jesus lumps in, to be very honest, the idea of this being about forgiveness of sins when in the language about the cup, you know, this is my, my blood of the new covenant, and at least the way Paul remembers this story in 1 Corinthians, he goes, you know, which is given for the forgiveness of sins, mm-hmm. um, so that even though the Passover lamb itself in Exodus, nobody equates this with this lamb will die so that to forgive our sins, it's the lamb's blood will cover our doorposts, that imagery gets pretty quickly grafted in, that what the cross is about, it's like all, it's mm-hmm. like all the above, it's all these things all at once. The, the Passover lamb brings a sense of, fr- the, the Jews are taken from slavery to freedom. Mm-hmm. And in the cross, we're taken from slavery to sin, to freedom from sin. Sure. And so that's where that contrast comes into play there. It's not, you know, the physical freedom of, of being enslaved in a physical sense, but it is that spiritual freedom that we receive from the power of sin and death over our lives. And there is a recurring image in the New Testament about the idea of sort of being in bondage or being enslaved mm-hmm. or captive to the powers of sin. And, and, and again, I think that that's bigger than just um, sin as I, I do a handful of wrong actions. It's like this power that, uh, that I become complicit or is, is over me as mm-hmm. well. Uh, so that, like we've talked about before, Paul can say in Romans, like, the good that I want to do, I can't make myself do. Um, it's like the, we use that imagery from the, the Bob Newhart sketch about the woman who's afraid of water. I don't know how not to be afraid. That, like, it, it's, that there's something in us that isn't able to free ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that realizes, yeah, we're caught, we're captive in something that's bigger than ourselves. And the New Testament says, yeah, that, that kind of freedom is, is uh, the cross somehow has something to do with that freedom as well. Mm-hmm. So we've got... All those images that are in the background, um, are there other passages that you wanted to lift up that help us sort of get a window on how the New Testament writers think about or talk about um, what happens at the cross? Those are all mine. Yeah. Because there's one other at least notion that I wanted to toss out to you. Um, we, we gave a nod to it maybe last week when we talked about there's a line from Galatians about Jesus being the one who bears the curse because anyone who's okay. hung on a cross mm-hmm. is cursed. There's another passage. It comes from 2 Corinthians uh, in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. And it's it's weird and wonderful and scandalous. And I, I, I like all those things together. Um, there's a line. It's at the very, very last verse of 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul has just gotten done talking about how in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. And then he gets to verse 21, and, uh, or what we call verse 21. Paul just thought it was the end of the paragraph. <laughs> um, but Paul says, For our sake, he, presumably God, made him, presumably Jesus. So for our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no, knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, uh, there's this image of like whatever the disgustingness or the sickness or the whatever 
flavor of uh, what happens, what, what human beings are, are plagued with, with sin, that Jesus takes that and Jesus bears that mm-hmm. um, in a way that's a little bit different than the Passover lamb, because the, the, that Passover lamb just dies. Um, and it's a little bit closer to like that lamb and the scapegoat story mm-hmm. in the Day of mm-hmm. Atonement, that like all the, the sins of the people are placed on this animal in a symbolic sort of a way. And then that animal is driven off. That in a sense, here's Jesus as the one who bears all that, um, so that we don't have to bear mm-hmm. it anymore. Um, but again, there's there's something kind of scandalous about this. That Jesus' way of saving us is to do something that like looks ugly and villainous. That Jesus sort of bears the 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 the, the sin, the sickness, the the whatever. Have we talked about um, the poem, the Rag Man, yet? I don't think we've talked about it on this uh, podcast yet, but it's it's much like that imagery. Yeah, it's um. I think it's using that imagery. It's where uh, there's a rag man, and he goes around town, and he, you know, asks for everybody's old rags, and in exchange, I think he gives them like new ones, a new yeah. one. So, like uh, to the young woman, he asks for her old, her old raggedy like handkerchief, um, handkerchief she's and she's crying and so he gives her a new one and he takes that for himself and he goes on and like slowly just kind of gathers everybody's old rags their troubles their sins their hurts and um so it, it's very much that same image yeah and the writer that that's a walter wangren story he wrote it meant to be sort of as a as a parable as an allegory to talk about what christ is like so mm-hmm. this idea of that at the cross it, it's it's less about payment for sins and more about that sin itself is a sickness that is unpleasant. I mean, sometimes we talk about sin in this sort of pure divine accounting sort of a way, like um, that it, uh, it, it's super fun to sin, but it just costs a lot, and so Jesus pays the tab or something, as opposed to sin is, a, is something that's slowly killing us, mm-hmm. um, and that what we need is to be freed from that uh, and, and to have that cured or healed in us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that then also sort of connects with the idea you, that you see in so many of the gospel stories that Jesus spends his time healing people and equating that with the same work of, of forgiving sins. So the paralytic who gets let down through the roof in that story, mm-hmm. the first thing Jesus says to this guy who can't move his legs is, your sins are forgiven, as if like that's the primary need. Mm-hmm. And then, oh yeah, you can you can get up now, get up and walk. And that might seem weird to us unless you operate with a picture of like, that, that whatever sin is is more than just celestial accounting, but it's like it's also something that is killing a piece of us and is making us less than uh, fully human or less than what we're supposed to be, just like physical maladies or, or uh, paralysis or, or, or disease might be as well. And that Jesus has come to remedy all the ways in which we are less than. And so for the people who've been stepped on, it involves lifting them up. For the people who are more than deflating them some, mm-hmm. um, and for the people who are in need of forgiveness, all of us, that, that there's a sense of bringing that, that forgiveness as well. If we can go back to the Day of Atonement for a second. I, I've been thinking about that and um, you know how that's the one day out of the year where the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, um, into where the Ark of the Covenant were, was, where the mercy seat was, and I think about that day, and I think about the day of the crucifixion, mm-hmm. and when the temple, the curtain in the temple mm-hmm. is torn in two. And this is something we don't spend a lot of time talking about, mm-hmm. um, because it's a Good Friday thing. And so unless you have a Good Friday there's, service... There's, there's a lot of things going on on Good Friday, too, <laughs> that you could have like an hour, you know, hours and hours of sermons to get at all these details on one, yeah. But on that day, the, the curtain in the temple that separates, again, the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple is torn, and not from bottom to top, you know, no human mm-hmm. tore it, but it's torn from, from top yeah, to bottom, yeah. and it's just another sign that, you know, this day, the, this, these constant sacrifices that you've been making year after year after year, every, every year that you've had the tabernacle or the temple, you don't need that anymore. 
because of the, the sacrifice that Jesus has made for the entire world. So it's not, atonement is just not a once a year thing anymore. It's a constant communication with God that we can receive at any point in the year, which for me, that's just such a powerful image that I don't think we, we spend enough time in the church. I know I don't spend enough time in the church talking about that particular image and what that means. Yeah, that, that detail seems like it's so rich, and yet, like, when the gospel writers mention it, they just sort of leave it hanging there, like, as though its meaning speaks for itself in a way that we, without a regular experience mm-hmm. of being around the temple, sort of, it can get lost on us. But that notion of whatever the barriers between humanity and God is, is ripped apart, there's a mm-hmm. sense of finality, too, of, like, we don't have to keep doing it. And the writer of Hebrews will regularly mm-hmm. go to that, like, there used to be sacrifices every day, and Jesus has brought this to an end as the culmination of the final sacrifice um that 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 barrier now is is taken down and from god's side that it's not a matter of us doing enough good stuff to make it come down yes we don't have to go somewhere to go and receive Mm -hmm. forgiveness we can you know because god is no longer limited to the mercy seat right but he is with us everywhere and that mercy is available to us 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year yeah so there are surely other passages we could spend time on, but at least I think we've given a, a tried to do a, a decent job of taking a survey of places in the Old and New Testament that um, fill in that picture of what we think happens at the cross or how to make sense of what picture should be in our heads. So uh, we're glad that you've been listening, and uh, we'll hope you'll join us next time for more adventures. See y'all. Bye.